Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Evergetinos. Uh, for those who are new, we're still in the first volume, and tonight we're starting with a new hypothesis, hypothesis 20 on page 150 of the text. And uh, we had been looking at obedience, which was beautiful, if you remember from last time, as well as our discussion on it too. And uh, and coming to love obedience, uh, seeing what it conforms us to, and the, the graces that come through it. Tonight, our focus shifts a little bit on to the advice of fathers uh, and the revealings of the secrets of the heart. And uh, certainly this comes forward in a lot of the writings of, of the fathers, from the sayings through more developed works like this, about how important that is in terms of not hiding uh, that which is in one's mind and heart, that healing comes through the revelation of it to someone who uh, certainly has experience in dealing with whatever passion might be behind it. And uh, as we'll see, often there's a hesitancy uh, to do that, that there can be a certain level of uh, a feeling of embarrassment, shame, uh, the desire to keep such things hidden, or pride at times uh, slips in and thinking that one doesn't need the counsel of others, that we would be able to, say, read something from the fathers and, some, and be able to apply it on our own without having the, the counsel of somebody who's actually uh, lived the life for many years and has an experiential knowledge uh, of the spiritual life. And so uh, we're picking up with letter A from Palladius, number one. There once lived an Alexandrian named Peron, whose neighbor I was. This main man, Heron, was younger than I, well-bred, intelligent, of clean life, and extremely weak in body on account of his excellent way of life as a monk, so much so that many of those who knew him said that he often ate only every three months, satisfying himself with Holy Communion and some wild weeds, if such happened to take root in the place where he lived. <laughs> I've found it sort of amusing to read this first paragraph. In fact, I had to read it a couple times, uh, praising the fact that he was extremely weak in body, that there was a bit of a disconnect there for me until I saw that they were talking about the ascetic life. But we can already see here the extremes 
uh, to which this this monk went, and uh, especially those who have read Cassian, uh, know that the counsel of the fathers is often to avoid the extremes on either end of the spectrum, that there's always a kind of danger in going uh, to the extreme, especially with fasting, to weaken the body too much. And certainly eating as little as he did over a long course of time would weaken the body to such an extent that he would place himself in jeopardy or pride. I also came to know Heron from close up up close, I'm sorry, whenever he, we happened to go together with the blessed Alvinios to Skidus, which was 40 semia distant from us. During the time in which we walked, we usually ate and drank twice while he put nothing into his mouth. And as he traveled on foot, he recited Psalms by heart, a great Psalm, uh, 118, and 15 others, the epistle to the Hebrews and the book of Isaiah, as well as part of the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the gospel according to St. Luke, and the Proverbs. Despite this, we could not keep up with him as he walked. Now this man, so full of virtue and asceticism, after so many great labors and so much perspiration, came, became greatly possessed by pride. And from there was cast down into a fall that was lamentable in every way. Having fallen on account of such vain arrogance and considering himself greater than the Holy Fathers, he railed at everyone saying, anyone who listens to your teachings is deceived because we should not have any teacher except Christ for Christ, since the Savior himself said to call no man on earth teacher. So much did this man become darkened in his mind from sinister pride. So far did he fall from the heights of virtue, just as Oulis, often rendered in English Valens, whom I have described, that eventually he closed himself in his cell and did not want to come out even to partake of the holy mysteries. And so the, the readings are a little bit longer and more detailed. The stories are more detailed in this uh, hypothesis. In fact, it's a good 20 pages long, uh, so it's a little bit more lengthy than what we've looked at in the past, and, but very detailed, and most often with the, with the neglect of seeking the counsel of others. And so they start off here in a rather vigorous way and sort of sharp uh, way and showing us these examples of those who fall through, through their pride and fall in really extreme fashion, extreme fashion as we see here with Heron, that you know, he removes himself, secludes himself to such an extent that he cannot participate in the holy mysteries. And so we, we see that he not only places himself above the teachings of the elders, but even, in term, even above that of the gospel itself eventually, even though he's criticizing the others for not following the counsel of Christ in, in the sense of call no man your, your teacher. Eventually, uh, he makes himself, places himself above everyone else, including the Lord, uh, and not uh, participating in the holy mysteries at all, just simply walling himself up. And as much as I would have dreamt of doing so, uh, I think I could see the extremes of, of, of such a behavior and the danger it would put one in. Finally, having been swept away by the demon of pride, so that he was burned within by an exceeding strong fire, he went down to Alexandria, there to pull a nail with a nail. 
uh, sort of a strange phrase. And I've never come across it before. And uh, the, I think the footnote said something along the lines that it can mean like trying to pull a peg with a peg, that there's kind of the wrong uh, instrument, if you will, uh, that makes it very difficult to remove something. He fell into such indifference that he would frequent the theater, racetrack, and taverns. Finally, he succumbed to the wanton desire for a woman so that he seriously thought of falling to sexual sin. Indeed, he met an actress with whom he continually spoke of this passion. However, while in this state, by the providence of God, a carbuncle appeared on his genital organs. And for six months, he was taken by such illness that his private parts rotted away entirely and fell off by themselves. When he became well and had recovered, he returned to the skeet, deprived of his private parts. There he remembered the heavenly realm, acquiring again a godlike outlook. He confessed uh, to the fathers everything which had happened to him, but was unable to realize his repentance in a virtuous life since he reposed after only a few days. So there's nothing like having your private parts fall off to make you repent. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, folks, this was a hard one to read without smiling or without bursting into laughter. But, uh, uh, but we see, you know, it's, you know, he had fallen so deeply uh, that to pull him out of the pride uh, required something extreme. And uh, we, we hear something similar in, in the scriptures where, uh, you know, if somebody falls into sin that you talk to him individually and then take another individual with you to talk with him if he's still entrenched in his sin, and then you take it to the church, and then eventually you hand him over, uh, you sort of set him outside of the community. And there, you know, he's able to experience the consequence of his sin and uh, be sort of uh, the victim of Satan himself. So tossed, uh, tossed around by his passions completely. And uh, so he, this man had become so deluded in his pride uh, that even on a bodily level, he you know, experiences uh, the, the corruption that his sin had brought to him. And God uses this in such a way that, you know, it seems extreme to us and painful to us, of course, but it, it certainly brings him to his senses, uh, sort of like the prodigal son, and, uh, and allows him to return, uh, in fact, to the monastery. And so even though uh, he wasn't, as we heard in, earlier in this volume, even though he wasn't able to change the specifics of his life and the manner of his life, uh, before dying, uh, he th through his repentance, he was be able to be reconciled to God, that there was great mercy shown to him here in the end. Uh, so, uh, again, you know, very difficult story to listen to, but I think there's something that I find very comforting in the Father's writing, especially on repentance, that we see no matter how far a person has fallen, and it's hard to imagine someone falling as far as this man did, obviously, you know, that uh, he had separated himself in so many different ways uh, in his pride that, uh, that even here, 
you know, the, the turning of the mind and the heart to God brings upon him this flood of mercy. And so even before, again, uh, there's this capacity to repent in terms of the specifics of the way, his ways of life. And, uh, and so there's always this enormous hope that is held out to us. And we should have this kind of confidence in Christ. And this is what really in the end gives us courage to endure and to continue on in the spiritual life, not our own strength or our own capacity. We see how deluded the, this uh, great ascetic uh, became in his pride. It's really the acknowledgement of one's own poverty and weakness and placing one's confidence completely in Christ where one receives strength in the spiritual life and, had, and also finds courage to enter into the spiritual battle fully. And so once again, you know, through the, these stories uh, that are painful to read, you know, this unwillingness to follow the advice or the counsel of anyone, uh, even within them, you know, God is able to overcome the, the darkest of pride and the darkest of delusion. Did anyone have any comments on this particular section? Anyone? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Sorry for my laughter there. It's sort of juvenile, but uh, uh, Josie. Mm -hmm. Still, maybe she's still typing. Mm -hmm. Or did you already? You there, Josie? Okay, here it is. You said that the reason he fell was because he did not listen to the fathers. However, okay. Mm -hmm. We do not have fathers nowadays. And the, the, was that your full question, full thought? Therefore, we also have no one to listen to. Yeah, you know, this is, is always a danger. And I think it's even the danger of going out into the desert that we hear the fathers speak of, you know, the embrace of the life of solitude in particular, that when one falls, there's no one to pick them up. And so there is this danger of prematurely entering into the life of solitude, even for uh, the one who's been called to the monastic life. And uh, certainly, uh, if we are to separate ourselves uh, from the counsel of, of others in our lives, you know, like them, I think we are going to find ourselves in a position where there is no one to pick us up. And, you know, your point is well taken, and we've spoken about this many times before, about the, the lack of elders to turn to, and especially in the way that is spoken of here in this uh, hypothesis in the sense of being able to re reveal one's thoughts and what is one in one's heart to another. But what we do have certainly uh, is confession and the grace of the sacrament itself that I think in many ways uh, may make up for what is lacking in our own time. And we do in reality also have the fathers available to us. We have this great treasure house available to us now in terms of seeking the counsel of those who do, did have an experiential knowledge of this spiritual battle. And, uh, and we do have to search, I think, in our life to find someone who's at least seeking 
to live this life or sought to live this life for, for many years. But uh, many of the modern elders, even like Amman Athos or East and West, lament the fact that, uh, as you say, they are lacking in our own day. And so in many ways, uh, our faith has to be deeper in the sense of engaging in the struggle that we have to in our own day, all the things that we contend with in the spiritual life, uh, that we really have to cling and to Christ, cleave to him in and through our prayer. And so even though we might lack the counsel specifically of elders, you know, that which comes to us through the gift of faith and through the sacramental life, I think makes up in some sense for the void that we, we might experience in our day-to-day -day life. And we see, we've seen God in different ages, I think, provide for what is lacking. And I, I think even over these you know, past years since the council, the church has been sort of in this upheaval, and um, which I think is pretty typical for the church after the time of a council you know, a period of 50, 60 years, even 100 years after a council, can, there can be sort of uh, this back and forth uh, until uh, the full measure of what a council was led to consider uh, comes to fruition. And, you know, certainly we've had our upheavals in the past generations. And, uh, but I think we've also seen God in many ways work many beautiful things within the life of the church. And we see, and certainly I've seen as a priest in the almost 30 years, you know, individuals who are seeking God very deeply in their life and have a uh, uh, deep and rich spiritual life, prayer life, and who do read the fathers, do read the scriptures and are participating in the sacramental life, Eucharistic adoration. And we're, you know, I think we're seeing, from my perspective, as, uh, as ugly as people present things, especially on the internet, you know, about the state of the church, you know, I, I've seen great sanctity uh, within the life of the church. And, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say something like, well, the Novus Ordo has never produced any saints and th things such as that. And I don't think you can say that. Uh, because I've, I've seen very saintly figures and those who endure great suffering and hold on to Christ with faith and are nourished deeply by the mass as well as adoration and, and confession. And, uh, and so there's a lot more that we don't see in terms of the saints that God raises up. And that's where I find a great deal of hope uh, as a priest, you know, there are little islands sometimes or individuals that you speak to where you see the spirit of God working in a very powerful way. And so while there might be things that are lacking to us in our own generation, that I, I, I see God working in other ways uh, where it might not be so obvious or clear to us, at least at this point. And this is where we have to keep our focus fixed upon Christ. We have to love the church. Uh, and, and, you know, embrace the spiritual life as deeply as we can, the sacramental life, and not be drawn, I think, where we see many being drawn in our own day, you know, you know, to, into a kind of hypercriticalism, a kind of rarefied view of the church, uh, or, 
you know, where it's a kind of distorted image. It's distorted on either end of the spectrum. I, I think we see these incredible distortions arise and, you know, where one's focus is being taken off of Christ and one can be under the illusion that they're living the, the life of faith. But I don't know, sitting in ju judgment of the church is always sort of a, a dangerous place to be. And it's not as though we, you know, set aside our critical faculties, especially when there's injustice, you know, uh, at play. But I think there are a lot of people out there who are willing to make themselves popes. And, you know, it's never a good thing. Ambrose Little. We have a great treasure trove of saintly writings to learn from and be disciples to, much more so than in the time of the early Desert Fathers and to complement scripture. And we also have our pastors, our bishops, who often provide contemporary guidance on things that are new and or relevant to our time that may not have been so previously. We also can have spiritual friends who can encourage us, build us up, many lay institutes, fraternities, so forth, as well as less formal spiritual friendships. Exactly, I mean, all really well put. Uh, and we don't think about that. And I think sometimes, uh, we are blinded to it because we are so focused in receiving information, I think from certain places, the internet in particular. And I was talking to Ren earlier today, when I first came up through the oratory, there was no internet. And we used to get, uh, I don't know if you remember the, the paper that would come from Rome, Reservatory Romano, the Roman Reserver, and you'd get you know papal statements, what was going on within the life of the church, or there was another periodical called Origins that would produce uh, the papal documents, you know, uh, that would be put out, and that was it pretty much in terms of access to material that uh, one would have readily. It's, we, it's not like now where anyone can sort of go on the internet, and then you're re they're receiving information from all these spurious sources, and uh, and. And I think that's sort of become problematic because it blinds us, I think, to what Ambrose is saying here in his comment, that there is this incredible treasure trove that we have that the Desert Fathers did not have, that they their spiritual reading, as we've talked about before, was the scriptures primarily, that they, you know, they immersed themselves in the scriptures, they memorized it, uh, they engaged in the spiritual life, the holy mysteries, they engaged in the ascetical life, but in our day, we do have access to all the things that Ambrose talks about here, you know, centuries upon centuries of the, of the writings and the examples of the saints and the martyrs, and uh, really at our, our fingertips. And then as he puts here, you know, pastors, bishops, uh, their, their writings and guidance, uh, you know, back in say Isaac the Syrian's day, when we were studying his writings, we're seeing how difficult, how removed they were from the rest of the, the Christian world, that it would often take a hundred years from the writings of a council to reach this far end of the Christian world. And, uh, uh, and we have access to, to so much in regards to, and not, not just spiritual writings, but uh, the social teachings of the church too, you know, these things that guide the ways that we engage in the world and how we look at the world as a whole. And, uh, and so I think because of the things that people see, and certainly they're real, you know, the, 
contemporary scandals that we've seen within the life of the church and among the clergy, uh, sort of a, a cooling of fervor in so many different areas. And, you know, certainly the falling apart of religious communities that we saw, the diminishment of, of vocations, a lot of uh, liturgical experimentation. You know, there's no denying all of that that took place. Uh, but, you know, uh, we have so much that's available to us that can really transform our, our own life. And this is where we really have to be focused upon embracing it fully for ourselves, but can transform the life of the church as a whole. And, you know, even with Pope Francis's, you know, his placing limitations on the extraordinary form. And again, Ren and I were talking about this earlier today about, you know, nobody talks about what he was saying there in terms of the you know, stopping of the, his speaking to the bishops about stopping the experimentation with the mass of, you know, moving towards this reverent practice and the way that it should be embraced and practiced. And, uh, and so internally, uh, the, the church is scattered and there's a kind of uh, suspicion that exists uh, you know, a way of interpreting certain realities that really jades people's view of things and creates a kind of hopelessness, I think, within the, the life of the church, you know, a kind of contempt. Uh, it's a really a, a really dark thing. I've seen it sort of change and transform people's lives in a very dark way, you know, took people who are really deeply faithful and immersed in the pursuit of Christ, but then they get immersed in this pursuit of these particulars that they see uh, going on with the liturgy or within the life of the church as a whole. And so focused upon that, that that becomes their view of their view of the church and of the spiritual life narrows. And I don't even think there's a consciousness of it. And I think there is something genuine about it in terms of their, what first motivates them, you know, kind of this love of the church and their pain by what they see going on and fearful for the future. But eventually it can really darken the vision so much that it blinds them and takes them off the path altogether. Where we do lose sight of what Ambrose was saying here that we have, including, you know, lay institutes, fraternities, and less formal re spiritual relationships. You know, these kind of uh, intimate spiritual friendships where there is this encouragement of one another to, to pursue the life of holiness. Uh, I think I've mentioned in the past, we have something here called the Daughters of St. Philip Neri that emerged in a very organic way from a document that came from Rome about uh, spiritual motherhood, adoration and reparation that was real, really, really very beautiful. And that there were already you know, a good number of women who are already living this and embracing it and sort of in this hidden way, you know, they live this life of deep prayer of adoration daily, uh, you know, praying for the church and praying for priests in particular. And there's deep fruit that comes from that, that nobody sees, I think, within the life of the church, you know, it's not going to be reported in the news. And, uh, and yet, you know, if you find sort of Philip, well, like Philip Neri said, if I had 10 truly detached men, I could convert the world. And, you know, if you have 10, 12 deep prayers 
Think about what that could do for a parish or a ministry or the priesthood as a whole or their own families. And, uh, and so we don't want to lose sight of these things. And uh, I think part of my desire in often in going to read the fathers is to draw us our, our focus back to Christ ultimately, because their focus was so deeply upon Christ and upon the scriptures and nourishing themselves on it and this pursuit of Christ in the life of holiness. And uh, so it's not to be, and we see how easy it is to be drawn off of the path, uh, even from this example that we just read. Uh, but part of it is to go back to these sources that really do nourish us with solid food and not get pulled into the th things that uh, are sort of out, out, out at the margins as much as people would want to draw them to the center. And just as a final little follow-up comment to Ambrose here that Cantalomessa has that wonderful little book I've mentioned before called Loving the Church. And he just frames all of this in a beautiful way. He's a wonderful writer preacher to the paper, papal household. And it's not a book that's often talked about, but it's been very, I think it's very important for our day and age. Anthony, and then Bridget McGinley. Okay, Anthony, you're a, to modify something attributed to Padre Pio. If you think I would make a mistake, do you think God would? Go out with a good will, be determined to be pliable to God, try to exert right reason, be cheerful and hopeful. God will take care of you, lead you along, bring you to the right people for your instruction and for you to help, even if not an elder. And beware of Jansenism, the scourge of traditional Catholic, Catholic spiritual formation, exactly, especially among French, the French and Americans. I like a priest monk friend's praise of peasant spirituality. For me, it, it fits. So, yes, you know, it's there, you know, that we have to see the hand of providence in every age and whatever we might be experiencing in our personal life and spiritual life or in, in the life of the church, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more and that often it is in the very trials that we go through that God brings about a great transformation. And so our greatest hope should be in God and the action of his spirit within our lives. And so as Anthony was saying here, be pliable to God, use, make use of the gifts that he's given us, reason, be cheerful and hopeful. You know? And so following Paul you know, in this thought, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice that the fundamental attitude for us as Christian men and women is to be that of joy. And uh, given what we've just celebrated, you know, that every time we celebrate the Holy Eucharist, we experience the resurrection in the most concrete and tangible way. And uh, there was one saint who I came across said that, you know, the celebration of the Eucharist is like a, a gathering of uh, of like gods together that we are drawn into the divine life so fully in and through it that uh, we are elevated and begin to particip participate in the life of the resurrection. And so, you know, 
why wouldn't we be the most hopeful of individuals in that regard and the most joyful knowing that this is what we have access to on a daily basis? And so while we might lament not having these elders, uh, again, you know, Anthony, uh, like Ambrose, is drawing some good points here, you know, avoiding Jansenism, you know, this sense of, you know, seeing ourselves striving to pursue that life of holiness, uh, but overemphasizing the human element of it to the point that we lose sight of the action of God. And, uh, you know, this it can be an incredible uh, problem within the life of the church and often has been. And uh, so the peasant spirituality, did you have a just a little follow up to that? Did you have an idea of what could you give a little example of what you're what you mean there? I'm just curious. You could say it if you want here. <laughs> okay. Okay, Father. It's um the way I take it anyway. It's the joyful happiness. It's like the Slavic peoples incorporating a love of nature into their into their everyday life. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's it's like um, uh, enjoying epiphany as little Christmas. Mm-hmm. That happiness, it's it's a childishness in some ways, and it's not getting caught up in my own head. Mm-hmm. Um, without being like a liberal hippie or anything, it's <laughs> it's enjoying the community that God's put you in with its trials and tribulations. It, it's like an optimistic, happy fiddler on the roof. Right. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I love it. And yeah, you know, I think you're onto something there. And, uh, you know, I never got to experience that as a Catholic, but I grew up among people that I think had that kind of spirit. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, from the mill towns down the river from us. And, and uh, they often seem to have that. And to have that amongst each other, too, like a deep connection to each other, too, this kind of joy in the community that was often surrounded the life of the church uh, that was enriching for them and strengthened them in so many different ways. Uh, And so their faith life wasn't something that was abstracted from the, the community as a whole and was, in fact, enriched by that reality on so many different levels social you know or the things that you were talking about you know the connection to to nature itself or uh you know their celebration surrounding something like epiphany right so bridget mcginley okay As a wound care nurse, I've seen women come in that have sincerely regretted having breast augmentation procedures due to the consequences of the complications. And you can see and feel the mark of remorse in them for this vanity. The story about the wayward monk resonates with me because I've seen this exact thing that is written. How do we recognize pride of heart when there are so many paths, both good and bad? like fasting and prayer life? How do we avoid excesses? How do we know the signs that we are being balanced and humble in our spiritual life? 
if we don't want, don't have that spiritual father to discuss the details of our lives to. Yeah, you know, it's a very difficult thing. And especially when we, you know, get further into this hypothesis, we see the importance of it, you know, of, of being able to lay before another what one is thinking about. And not only the, the thoughts that we struggle with, or those that would be tied to the passions, but even those things that are good in regards to our spiritual discipline. And uh, to be able to lay them out and to have another scrutinize them to see where the thoughts are coming from. Because as we've talked about before, sometimes there are so many things in the spiritual life like this monk uh, that can be rooted subtly in a pride, you know, of wanting to have this kind of spiritual identity of a great ascetic, for example, uh, that would be a particular danger of a monk. Uh, but that can be true for us as well, you know, that we can take upon ourselves disciplines that are too extreme. And again, I think this is where we would want to rely upon something like the confessional or a spiritual confidant. Uh, and where there can be a kind of spirit of obedience in which we are leading there, that we would not do something simply in accord with our own will or our own judgment. And uh, even if the confessor that we are speaking with might not be known, you know, as, you know, a, a great spiritual giant for, or known for giving great spiritual counsel, uh, still, you know, what is gained through the obedient spirit there to lay before uh, this priest what we are contemplating in terms of uh, spiritual discipline? that it might be less than what we would think would be fruitful for us. But I think what we've seen in the previous hypothesis and what we'll see here, that that spirit of obedience conforms us more to Christ than anything that we would choose in accord with our own will. And so there is nothing lost in, in that, uh, even if uh, we feel that we're losing something in terms of what we could accomplish in the spiritual life through a specific discipline, that the obedient will or setting aside of the will uh, conforms us to Christ and also will bring a kind of blessing there to us uh, and you know, bring us under the guidance of the spirit, if you will, uh, so that we're able to be protected from these extremes. And hopefully, you know, I think as we go through this hypothesis, some of the stories are a little uh, harsh like this, but I, I think it becomes more, a little bit more subtle where we see the value of it and how it is done, how it would be enacted in our life. And I think we might be able to apply more of what is being written here to our day-to-day -day lives, even outside of the context of having a spiritual elder to speak with. It's a kind of spirit and attitude of obedience and humility that is meant to guide our, our actions and our behaviors. And this we can help cultivate. I think from all the things that we've talked about, spiritual writings we have available, as well as the counsel of friends and uh, you know those that we trust. So we'll, we'll hopefully we'll be able to uh, flesh that out a little bit more for you as we get further into the hypothesis. Okay, let's move on a little bit here. Number two. Now, again, another man whose name was Ptolemy uh, and whose virtuous life is difficult 
for one to recount, lived at first as an ascetic far from the skeet in a place called Climax, the place of the latter, in which no other monk until then had been able to live since it lay some 18 samea from the well with water. Ptolemy, however, had acquired some clay pots and with a sponge, he would collect the dew which came down in that isolated place during the night in December and January and would place it in the pots. Under these difficult conditions, he remained in that place for 15 years, during which time he encountered no one else. He became estranged, therefore, from every benefit of instruction and from any association with the Holy Fathers and was deprived of the continuous partaking of the holy mysteries of Christ. The result of this estrangement was that he fell into such a great mania and was so diverted from the straight path as to fall into the impious theory of automatism. In other words, the devil tricked him into believing and proclaiming that all the different things of the world are not creations of God, but simply exist and have been created adventitiously. So a, sort of a mechanical working of the things of this world where God really isn't involved in, in one's life. And so again, we're, we're looking here at the extreme behavior that Jesus himself sort of warns against uh, in the, the gospel that we read really at the beginning of Lent, if you remember, you know, of, of keeping certain things hidden. Uh, that, uh, uh, but here, you know, the emphasis is upon, again, avoiding these kinds of extremes where one is focused upon the self. And so despite the fact that this monk uh, had, you know, lived in this really rough environment that no one else could live in and found a way to survive that psychologically as well as spiritually, it led to great darkness for him, that the isolation from others uh, had a, an effect upon him emotionally, that he became estranged from others and, you know, stopped participating in the holy mysteries, which I think is you know, probably the worst of things, uh, but fell into a kind of mania, you know, so, you know, is driven by, you know, his own peculiar vision of, of life in the world, uh, again, which had become distorted over the course of time. And so again, we're, we're presented with sort of this harsh image I think for a reason, and it's to emphasize the importance of seeking the advice of others, that asceticism is not an end in itself. And uh, so while it's essential, and while I've you know, said so many times that Christianity is an ascetical religion, that we have to exercise our faith uh, through all the means that have been given to us, uh, if it's made an end in itself, and it's, if it's separated from the community, the lived reality of the church itself, uh, then it very quickly falls into distortion. And we, we see this, you know, I think a wonderful example of this is, in the West, at least, is the rising of new religious communities, say like the Franciscans. You know, Francis has this really strong charism and this sense, you know, of the, 
importance of poverty and the freedom and the joy that came from the embrace of poverty. Uh, but we see, you know, the church engage the, the Franciscans very early on and that they are compelled, you know, to, to develop a role and even to moderate things in a particular way in accord with the mind of the church and its, its view and judgment upon that particular charism. And, you know, throughout the ages, we've, we see people resist to this kind of oversight from the church as a whole. And often they split off or, uh, and, you know, little groups, you know, who feel that they're living it more fully, you know, have taken this high road and it ultimately leads to destruction uh, for them. And even within the Franciscans, this happened a number of different times. Uh, and so, you know, this is what's important here, you know, is that he separates himself in a radical way from the living community of the church. And so elevates himself as well as his practices above this greater reality, which is the participation in the life of the church through the sacraments. And uh, so talk about a red flag uh, in a person's spiritual life that, you know, where one suddenly doesn't, you know, think or feel that you need to participate in, in the sacraments, that somehow you're above it, or that your ascetical life has lifted you above it on, you know, to a certain level. And what a distortion there is there, you know, I think in the sense of, of seeing the grace of God active in our life, but even the need of God's grace to protect us from falling into to error or into sin or to perfect our virtue, to transform us in the way that he desires. And so there is an essential humility that is required for us to step forward and take hold of what God gives us in and through the sacramental lives. So we do not save ourselves. And no matter how, one, how far one has progressed in the spiritual life, we are always in need of God's saving, saving help, saving grace. Under these difficult conditions, he remained in that place for 15 years during which time, oh, I'm sorry, let me jump down a little bit further here. Thus, once the enemy of the life of all had put this foolish delusion into Ptolemy's mind, uh, it afterwards entirely entered his, into his soul. He then said to him, since everything is by chance and nothing exists by intention, why do you torture yourself needlessly? And what will you be benefited since there is no reward after death? And what, re what reward worthy of your so many difficult labors can there be for you? And who is it who will repay you? Moreover, what is this judgment that the scriptures threaten since everything exists without any purpose? And so you see how dark the delusion there comes from him. His, his extreme asceticism even draws him away from the truth of what has been revealed to us in and through Christ. That in fact, there is nothing for him beyond this world. And, uh, and so why bother engaging in the asceticism at all? So talk about a, a strange path, you know, this immersion in this deep asceticism, only then to be tempted into devaluing it completely. 
And uh, I think that's what happens. You know, it's something is overvalued, romanticized, idealized. Eventually, that's going to collapse. And we do that. That happens with people. But I think it also happens with certain spiritual practices like this. It's idealized. And then when you confront the realities of it, it can be devalued very quickly or one can be tempted to devalue it. When the wretched Ptolemy became utterly possessed by the satanic thoughts, he abandoned asceticism, and as they say, lost it and went mad. Uh, that seems like a, a rather uh, modern interpretation, English interpretation there, that he lost it <laughs> and went mad. Uh, to this day, he wanders around Egypt aimlessly, given over to gluttony and drinking wine without talking to anyone. He walks up and down the marketplace silently, a wretched and lamentable sight in the eyes of Christians, but also the object of insulting curses and ridicule from those who do not know our life. Such an incurable calamity befell the pitiable Ptolemy. Ptolemy? I'm sorry, I might be mispronouncing that. Because of his irrational pride, thinking himself to have understanding greater than all the Holy Fathers, to the end that he never associated with them, that he might benefit from their teaching and govern his life with their teachings. He became intransigent, and for this reason tumbled down into the darkest depths of spiritual death. And all those who do not govern their lives as they should will fall just as leaves fall from a tree. So, you know, again, you know, very jarring image but as so often is the case in these hypotheses, I think they're meant to sort of wake us up to an element of the spiritual life that we often aren't attentive to. And, you know, here we, we have somebody taking this, this path that, you know, where he sets out with this good end in mind, but following his own judgment and, you know, being led by... For, pride falls into a kind of irrational behavior. He loses sight of reality itself, having disconnected himself from the community of others, and then ultimately disconnecting himself from God, uh, falls into the deepest delusion, the deepest kind of darkness. And, you know, I've often preached this in homilies, and I feel like I just don't get through with it, get through with the notion. And maybe I don't use strong enough uh, images like uh, the writers here do, but you know, religious people are capable of the greatest delusions. You know, because we can think we can can we can fool ourselves that something is coming from God, that is being inspired by God, and so we can be led much further than many others who are being you know are misguided in their thinking in one way or another that they might stay in touch with reality in some sense emotionally more than we do if we give ourselves over to this kind of, of pride that really darkens our vision so profoundly. And so, you know, this is a kind of danger in our age, you know, again, where there is a kind of radical individualism that has emerged. And everybody's placing their judgment above that of the church, above that of the fathers, and not even considering those things at all with any kind of generosity. And, but, but when it comes to things spiritual, 
there is this kind of danger of psychosis of of you know the worst sort and uh you know how does one emerge from that when one's perception of reality has become distorted uh you know we read in the previous example just how extreme that became you know the physical calamity that came over him that sort of brought him to his senses but in this instance you know where you know a kind of spiritual death has taken place you know how how does one emerge from that other other than by the miraculous hand of god acting in a person's life and you know i i think we have a tendency to think that that's an infrequent uh occurrence and maybe it's because you know this is such an extreme example uh but i don't think it has to be that extreme i think it can be far more subtle than what we're reading here that we can fall into these forms of delusion that really do darken our vision of reality itself and because it has this veneer of spirituality it makes it, i think it makes it even more dangerous you know because if a person believes that they're being guided by god what's going to pull them out of that it's not going to be you know the reasonable arguments of even those who are the closest to them you know that are begging them or you know with love pleading with them to you know reconsider their actions in one way or another ambrose it seems like we can lose sight of the providence of god we can focus on lessening of particular kind of spiritual guidance or particular traditions and pious practices or particular ways of celebrating the liturgy but what is god giving us in place of them how is god calling us to grow and live in our own day what faith filled friends has he put in our lives that we overlook or take for granted who could help us grow what might be missing we be missing surely god is not leaving us without his gifts and the necessary helps we need to live our lives of faith are we insisting that god help us in a way we want rather than the way he wants i think folks here in this group are taking advantage of one of the great gifts god is giving us today yeah you know the the your point about providence i think is certainly the most important thing here because i think you know when we become so focused upon some of the the things that you've mentioned here where we lose sight of these other gifts we are our faith is breaking down in some sense of believing in the providence of god in our life that we are elevating i think what we want the faith to look like or or not even just the faith but what living our faith out in our, our particular circumstances of our day-to-day -day life there are a thousand things that i would change about my life and i ask god daily what in the world are you doing and you know all these little fantasies go through your mind you know these waking fantasies like you know uh oh i'm just going to get a cabin in the woods you know i've had it <laughs> with this i'm i'm aging prematurely you know god couldn't possibly want me to be you know this fatigued or miserable or you know whatever it might be and you know we begin to lose sight of of god's hand 
but even in those that I think he has placed in our midst, who often offer us consolation and encouragement at the moment that we need it. And because we are, I think, focused upon our, ourselves or of trying to control the, the realities around us so much, we, don't, we often don't see what God has given to us. We don't see what we have right in front of us. And so we often feel like, where in the heck is God? Why has he abandoned me? And, you know, he has provided us with sometimes with extraordinary gifts and, and where we, we close the door to them altogether or, or are suspicious of them because they, in some ways, are not what we imagined or perhaps not what we want. You know, that on the surface, they don't seem to hold out a promise to us of healing, of hope, of friendship, of intimacy, of support. And, uh, and we can do this in a larger way, I think, with things within the context of the church as well. You know, how God is acting within his church at the moment. And, you know, it's sort of what I mentioned about Eucharistic adoration or even something like this that Ambrose mentioned at the end, you know, a group where we can gather and read the fathers in this deep way, you know, in sort of this un uncontrolled way, in the sense that we allow ourselves to be guided by a pace that God sort of sets here. And we try to listen deeply and, uh, and with a kind of generosity of spirit where we're willing to allow ourselves to be challenged. And it's a difficult thing, I think, for, you know, in the Western, when we've been formed in the Western world, you know, we're very comfortable in some sense, with our mindset and our worldview and our experience of things. As ugly as the world can get around us or as expensive as things can get or as threatening or having to wear that stinking mask for a couple of years or, you know, uh, or even the war in Ukraine, I think we could see all that kind of stuff as distant from us or not really touching us directly and be so far removed uh, from you know, seeing how, how God might be acting in the world and what, what these things might be saying to us, what they might be calling us to, the, the level of conversion, the depth of prayer. You know, if the pandemic didn't sober us up, you know, what's going on in Ukraine and with, with what Russia is doing? I mean, goodness sake, what does it take to, to wake us up out of our stupor? Ran Witter. These stories prove so perfectly via negativa, <laughs> fancy schmancy, uh, via negativa, the teachings of the last hypothesis on obedience as the sure path to the virtues that also protects us from pride. I frequently find myself formulating elaborate prayer rules being very satisfied with them, and then failing miserably. So the only thing I got out of it was an hour of pride. It seems that taking one's spiritual life into one's own hands is always a very dangerous way of that, unless under the instruction of a director, one should keep to the simple way of the church teachings and its guidance concerning prayer, nothing more. 
nothing creative. The spiritual benefits will never outweigh the danger of pride. It reminds me of Philip Neary and his disciple who insisted on keeping vigil and ended up harming himself permanently. Yes. And, you know, and, you know, what came to mind when I was reading that was, you know, sort of the way that we, we tend to popularize things too. And I see that emerging within, we, we want a fast way to certain things too, you know, uh, you know, certain programs or, and I don't want to be overly critical because some of these things could be helpful to people, you know, certain apps that exist out there. You know, if you follow this app, your spiritual life will be transformed. Well, maybe, maybe not. Or, you know, a kind of spiritual journal, you know, that you could keep. And, you know, there can be benefit to that, you know, but not everybody follows that same path or struggling with the same thing. And uh, it's not necessarily going to pull our life into order. And sometimes I think we, re we reduce the faith life to self-help, you know, and uh, and so part of what Ren is uh, speaking about here, you know, this sort of planning out, formulating elaborate prayer roles, you know, I, I think that can, we have a certain vision, again, of what we would want our, our life, spiritual life to look like, and even how we would want to be seen by God, but often it's also how we want to be seen by ourselves. If I fulfill this prayer role, then I'm going to have this sort of self-identity that is elevated. You know, I'm being a holy individual. And the longer you're in the spiritual life, you begin to see, gee, things are pretty messy. And even when God is really working hard on us, you know, uh, we're, we're reading in The Daughters this one book by Luis Martinez. He's an archbishop. And what's the title of that book again? Worshiping the Hidden God. And the first, the first chapter is about the path of humility. And, you know, we can often have this sense like, okay, I'll allow myself to be humble. But when am I going to turn that corner and start to be, you know, start to rise up? You know, and his whole point is that, you know, in this world, you're always on that path to humil of humility this downward mobility and uh and it can really get very messy when you sort of come around and you begin to see oh my gosh god is working on me again he stripped me of that once before and now i i see that there's another level and another you know uh uh sort of manifestation of this pride or the self-focus that he's going He's really going to seek to heal me of again. And it feels brutal because I feel a mess, a hot mess, that here I am, almost 30 years a priest, and, you know, I'm pathetic <laughs> in terms of the thoughts that go through my mind on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, and so I think what Ren is saying here, you know, sort of, and again, getting back to, uh, you know, Ambrose's thought about trusting in providence and allowing that to shape and guide us and allowing the teachings of the fathers, the teachings of the church, the practice of the life of the church itself in terms of the sacramental life to form and shape us, you know, that requires a kind of humility that we are embracing 
you know, what has been revealed to us and has been handed down to us and allowing, you know, sometimes it's funny whenever I talk to people about, I'm sorry, I'm digressing a little bit and I'm rambling. Uh, but uh, whenever I talk to people about the Jesus prayer in particular, you know, this non-discursive prayer, arrow, these arrow prayers and how powerful they can be, you know, in terms of being mindful of God throughout the day and in the struggle with temptation, uh, the struggle with distraction, you know, as Theophan said, you know, it's our foothold to this constant remembrance of God, this gentle movement of the mind and the heart to God. I get the feeling at times when I talk to people about that, that it seems too simple. That, you mean, just, you know, say this prayer and over and over again throughout the day, you know, it's almost like there's a kind of disappointment that I see come over people's face. And, uh, you know, and I try to go deeper with them and connect it with the tradition as a whole. But sometimes things like that, that are so simple, or the idea of, you know, going to mass regularly, preparing oneself, going to confession regularly, you know, participating in all the things that the, the church has given us, you know, that it's not new enough or engaging enough. And I think I mentioned once, you know, somebody traveling far distances to go to confession to uh, St. John Vianney. And after coming out of the confessional saying, that's it, you know, it's like they were expecting some extraordinary wisdom to come from the mouth of this simple French priest who simply made himself radically accessible in a faith-filled way in the confessional. And it's sort of like Jesus saying, you know, this is a, what does he say about the generation? This is a wicked generation because it looks for signs, you know? And so we are often, off, often looking for those things that appeal to a certain part of ourselves that wants to be excited, engaged, to have a certain feeling of being made spiritual. And so this humble path that has been set before us and that we see in Christ often doesn't have that appeal. You know, we're like the rich man, you know, send to my brothers, you know, uh, you know, somebody who rose from the dead, surely they'll believe that. Well, no, not necessarily. It's happened before and plenty of people don't believe in it. Okay. Uh, Ashley Cashel. I think this individualism we are talking about can also lead to a touch of willful ignorance of certain areas of the faith within groups of people. I've encountered a lot of adults who cannot be roused to investigate potentially fruitful areas of the spiritual life because it isn't for them or they don't want to go down that road. There's a sentiment of, I pray, I love God, I'm faithful, and that's good enough for me. But I think that is a dangerous place to be in the spiritual life because I don't think we should ever be content with where we are. Individualistic faith, seems to sometimes lead to mediocrity, which could also be a subtle symptom of pride, to cling covetously, covetously to the spiritual life we've made for ourselves. Wow, excellent 
comment because it sort of switches things around here. You know, we're, you know, we've been looking at these monks who sort of create this extreme spiritual life, extreme asceticism, but it can also go the opposite way. This kind of individualism that doesn't want to look to the elders or look to others can really be rooted in this kind of pride of saying, you know, what I've created is sort of good enough. I'm comfortable where I am. You know, I don't really do anything too bad and good person and uh, not, you know, and that's good enough. You know, me and God, you know, I like Jesus style kind of thing, but not not going much deeper than that. And uh, and so that can be, a, you know, this willingness to allow ourselves to be challenged and to, again, allow our sensibilities, our understanding to be shaken up. And we actually we don't have to look much further than Christ or the Gospels to to allow that to happen. I mean, just to read the Beatitudes or or to hear the Passion proclaimed during Holy Week, there is something there that really should set something going in our minds and our hearts if we are really listening. And we can hear all those things, but really have applied a kind of filter, a religious filter for ourselves that makes it more palatable or acceptable you know, and we can make it something that this just took place 2000 years ago and, you know, in a distant, you know, land and was done for us. But, and even the resurrection, we can see as something wonderful, but not realizing that there has been, that Christ rises within us. And, you know, today's gospel serve an interesting one you know, we're shown in these first days of the octave, the response of the initial response of uh, Jesus' disciples and the women at the tomb, you know, they are filled with fear and joy at the same time. And I thought that's an amazing thing because they have these two really disparate emotional experiences to this event. Uh, Joy over you know, the, the glory of it and that, you know, what God has done. Uh, but, you know, also this realization, uh-oh, there's no going back to familiar patterns and ways of living one's life. What does it mean that Christ has been raised? And what does that mean for all of us and our life in him? And, uh you know, and also the, the breaking of the, the, you know, the sort of the chains of sin and seeing ourselves as citizens of the kingdom. You know, what does that all this say to us in the way that we live our life? And so, you know, we, we are probably going to experience and should experience that same internal conflict, you know, joy and fear at the same time, because we're being presented with something that is revealed to us, not simply of our own, that we're comfortable with because we've created it with our own minds. So great point, Ashley, you know, I think there is something here, you know, we can become comfortable in our mediocrity and anything that calls us out of that. And, you know, we might even be pursuing a certain aspect of the spiritual life, but ignoring the voice of the church in other ways you know, social teaching, 
in particular, we can have a we can be deaf to this rich body of social teaching that the church has over and has developed over the course of the centuries, because there are certain elements of it that really, for those living a certain life in the West, would make us feel very uncomfortable with in terms of making us examine our lives. Only pay attention to the bits that agree with what we already think. That's right. You know, it's that that's what we often will gravitate to. And sometimes even in spiritual readings, you know, we'll gravitate towards what sounds good and then we'll we'll pass over very quickly something. Oh, that that's that sounds a little bit too challenging. And then, you know, we'll skip that paragraph or read through it very quickly. Okay. So my friends, we only got through two stories. They're a little bit longer, but your comments, everything, questions were really beautiful on the mark. And this is how I would really want to unpack it because it does allow it to be challenging for us and it pulls it into the present. And uh, so it's a beautiful thing. All right, so we'll pick up there next week. And uh, again, you know, Feel free uh, to you know, send me emails about the text. I've had some people say about the new format, you know, that perhaps we could add this personal element back in. You could see how well formulated the comments are. So I really like that. But some people have suggested, well, maybe have people read their own comment and engage, you know, so they are engaging more directly. I don't know if you feel that that would be a route to go with, you know, so that it's not just filtered through me or, you know, because I might emphasize something different, even in the way of I'm reading it. So let me know what you think about that. There's no urgency uh, about this, but I want to find a good mix for us. Okay. <coughs> As always, when we close them with the Our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Happy Easter, everybody.